Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you today. And it's good especially to be looking at a giant passage. Uh, Revelation 21 through 22. Uh, you might not get this because if you're looking in the bulletin, it just looks like any other page. But essentially, th- these are the last two chapters of the Bible. Um, if you go any further, you run into the maps section if your Bible has maps. Um, that's how it works. And, it, you know, some people, um, some people really like to take a story they're going to read and read from the first page and go sequentially. Uh, some people like to go and read the last chapter to know where the story's going. Um, we're doing that a little bit today. We're reading the very last chapters to see where this entire story of the Bible is going uh, to help us really understand the whole story and our role in it. And I thought just for fun, we would try something a little different with the sermon today and start with the conclusion. How's that sound? All right. I want to tell you four things or four questions to be thinking about as we walk our way through this incredible passage, Revelation 21 through 22, um, in it we see the redemption of all things, uh, new creation, the new heavens, the new earth. Uh, we see beauty and color, imagery and light, and we'll explore some of these images. But as we do, first I want you to think about worship. As you contemplate the very last chapters of the Bible, the end of the story, um, how does it lead you to worship? Uh, Both today as we gather as God's people, uh, in your life, how do you give honor and praise to this God who does these things and will do these things? How do you give honor and praise to the Lamb who comes down and shines with God's glory Um, Secondly, the lens or the question of mission. If this is where everything is going, if this is the last page, the last chapter, um, how do we align ourselves in the trajectory of where this is going? How, How do we do the work that God has given us to do? How do we invite others into this story in light of where this is all going and what we see at the end? Um, Second, or thirdly, um, what does this mean for our lives and in our communities? There's a vision of holiness and beauty, of God's righteousness, his justice. Um, And I know for me, when I contemplate that, I'm tempted to shrink back because I see the deficiency in my own life. And where I don't measure up to his righteousness, his justice, Um, I look in our communities and see ways that we don't measure up to this kind of a vision. Uh, We don't measure up to these ideals. I think we're called uh, to name those things, offer them to the Lord, and ask him to work, to redeem, to renew, to restore. Um, And then finally, as we go through this passage, my hope this morning is that it it gives you hope. Um, It it anchors your faith um, that, that you see Here's where the entire thing is going. Here's what God will do. We realize that God's going to do it. We can't do it. We can't make these things happen, but God will work. He's told us what he's going to do. He's going to bring it uh, to completion. And this should 
uh, be an anchor of hope when things seem hopeless. Um, when things are at their worst, whether that's, again, in our own lives, there are ways that uh, devastation and hardship and sin hit each one of us individually. There's ways that we see it um, at work in the world. So um, that's the end of the sermon. Does that work? Should we start at the beginning now? Is that okay? We'll go back and look at this passage. All right. Uh, Revelation 21 through uh, 22, God's good new creation. And by the way, this is not something that just starts in Revelation. We see it promised throughout the Bible, um, but you might miss it. Like all the way back in the, the book of, the, of Habakkuk, an Old Testament prophet, he says, one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I don't know how to do a science experiment on that, but that gives me hope that God's glory will be that full in his uh, creation. 2 Peter 3 says, according to his promise, not our work, his promise, uh, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness uh, dwells. And then we get this mysterious book of Revelation. Um, it fleshes out in incredible detail and using vivid imagery, this future of restoration and renewal of glory and righteousness, finally this promise that we will dwell with God forever. That's the last word that we get. We will dwell with God forever. Um, so this morning I want to talk about the goal of all things and the glory we see in this passage. Uh, first, the goal, Revelation 21 through uh, verses 1 through 4, the goal or the telos. Telos is one of my favorite Greek words. You ever heard that word before, telos, T-E-L-O-S? It's really not an academic word. It's an athletic one. It's the end, the goal, uh, the target, the finish line. Um, if, you're, if you're running a marathon, and we're in good, you know, the, the Greeks invented the marathon, right? We know this. If you're running a marathon, your telos is the finish line. That's the goal. That's the end. That's where it's all going. And so here, the Bible is telling us where the entire story of Scripture and really of just time and space and everything, here's where it's going. Here's the end. Here's the goal. We find it most fully here. The new heavens and the new earth. That God's people will dwell with him uh, forever. Um, and I would just say in the, in the nuance and the detail, um, it's very possible that that might not be what you were brought up with or trained in. You might have been said, hey, the whole point of this is just to go to heaven and have gold streets and, you know, maybe play a harp on a cloud. Um, and that's not bad. It's just not complete. Um, it's flattening out the story a little bit. It's not going on to see, you know, uh, it's true. Once we die, we go and be with the Lord, those who belong to him. Don't, don't mishear me on that. Uh, but then God will do something. God is waiting to do something. He tells us he's going to do something. And it's a work of transformation and renewal of making all things new. And we get the sketch of the life of the world to come. Saying, consider now what it would be like to live as citizens of this new creation, bearing witness to God's new creation, working for it, enjoying fellowship with uh, one another. And look at these incredible verses. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Um, it's like we're back in Genesis again. Creation language. Um, and think about it. If, if the Bible's one big story, the first chapter 
It is this beautiful chapter of creation, but then right after that, we have sin. We have the fall. We have fellowship lost. Uh, we, we no longer see uh, God's good creation, man and woman made in the image of God, dwelling with him. We see them exiled. They've brought a curse upon themselves, and the Bible works that out, how that can be forgiven and restored uh, in and through Jesus. But ultimately how uh, that plan for God to dwell with his people forever is going to be back on the agenda, back on the drawing board here in uh, the new creation um, Bishop N.T. Wright has probably taught me more about this than I've forgotten. Uh, I'm going to quote him, but just know if I say something and you go, he didn't quote N.T. Wright, uh, the good bishop of Durham, that could be behind this. And uh, if anything I say, you go, man, I've never heard that or thought about it, or that really intrigues me. Um, there's a book called Surprised by Hope, and I would highly recommend it for a summer read uh, to go through. Uh, but Bishop N.T. Wright says that what we have here uh, is the utter transformation of heaven and earth uh, by means of God abolishing the horrible, disgusting, tragic effects of human sin. He says this new good creation will be, uh, ha has some continuity with what we see now um, in the sense of it's a world full of beauty and power, delight, tenderness, glory. Uh, the new world will be like the present one uh, but without the things that we lament, without sin and death and tears and everything that causes them. Um, and then I think this is key. I, I, didn't, I didn't know this growing up. Um, but the main goal where all this is heading, the point, the focus is the lamb, Jesus, slain and risen from the dead. I always thought it was about me. <laughs> Um, I always thought church was about me, but it's actually about, first and foremost, Jesus. And there's benefits that we get, thank, thanks be to God. But it's about us, and it's about us following uh, the Lamb together. Uh, the Lord Jesus, who in verse 5 here says, Behold, I am making all things new. Not just you, not just me. He starts with us, but he makes everything new. It's renewed, it's transformed, it's made the way it's supposed to be. I'm going to look at verse 2. This is an odd image. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Um, there are so many uh, themes and images and major threads in the Scripture that are invoked just by that one verse. And that shouldn't surprise us. This is the very end of the story. So you're not having to go back and give, um, you know, character development. You're assuming folks have followed the entire story. Here we are. They go, hey, this is New Jerusalem. Uh, this is what was always promised. This is, uh, there's a marriage here of Christ and his church, of heaven and earth. Um, union for eternity, feast and festival, holiness and intimacy. Everything that is right and good and beautiful and true comes down from the Lord, in contrast to all that is not. And again, that should bring us assurance and hope and trust. Because how often do we look around at our lives, maybe in our families, our communities, our world, and go, this is not how it's supposed to be. Uh, Lord, how long would you work? Uh, would your kingdom come in its fullness? Uh, would finally New Jerusalem uh, come down? How long, O oh Lord, 
Um, and I know that sometimes kind of our, our hope of eternity, our hope of the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, that's sometimes been used to say, your life now doesn't matter. Don't worry how bad it is because look what's coming. It's a carrot on a stick. Um, and that's not the point here. It, it's, it's there to go, man, look at the great hope you have that should allow you to uh, endure and persevere through anything. The thing about how God's light will shine in the darkness and the darkness will never overcome it. Uh, one scholar I read on this, his name's Michael Gorman. And uh, he said that when we think about the new Jerusalem coming down, and I think this is hard for us to kind of grapple with, um, but if you're, if you're uh, one of God's covenant people, Jerusalem is everything, right? It, it's the center of your world. It's the center of your religion. It's the center of your family. It's the place of worship and glory. It's what you fight wars over to retain. It's where the very temple of God and his presence, his glory resides. That's what Jerusalem is. There's entire sections of the Psalms just on. Here's the worship songs we sing when we go to Jerusalem. And they say that new Jerusalem will come down. And whenever we have uh, Jerusalem or the New Jerusalem, the, the city of God, it's almost always in contrast to the cities of man. Babylon in the Old Testament, uh, Rome throughout the New Testament. I mean, if you would ask them, what is the hope of the world? If you ask them on the street corner, they would say Rome. I mean, anyone here been to Rome? It's incredible. It, it's still magnificent and, and beautiful. It speaks to a new world order, a new peace, a new hope for humanity. And the New Testament says that's not where we place our trust or hope. In fact, there are ways of the cities of man and the cities of Rome that are opposed to the new Jerusalem. And we're called to have our allegiance here. Um, it's interesting. If you Notice our reading kind of skips around. Do you notice that? We had a couple of verses and then jumped over here a couple of verses and then like we skipped a big chunk. Um, that's not because we're trying to hide anything from you. Uh, that big chunk we skipped is essentially an architectural digest of New Jerusalem. It describes the height and the width and the breadth of this city. It tells us uh, all the material it will be made of, what the gates will look like, all of the detail of this city. Um, and it's the kind of thing that if you read that entire thing in church, I, God bless you, your eyes will glaze over. You're like, I don't, can you just show me a picture? <laughs> like, maybe they need a PowerPoint here, I don't know. Um, but I want you to, there's one detail I want to kind of tease out that, that, that's in that kind of architectural digest. And it's simply, the, with this vivid imagery, the size of New Jerusalem coming down. Um, now, I've been to Jerusalem. I'm actually, we're taking a group this November to Jerusalem. Let me know if you want to go on that trip. Um, but you can, you can kind of take it in. Um, you can stand right there on the mount where Jesus would have descended with a donkey. You can see all of Jerusalem. Um, you know, your vantage, you don't need special glasses. You don't need binoculars. You can see the whole thing. Um, this Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven, uh, John the Revelator says, is 1,200 stadia in length, width, and height. Um, that probably means nothing to you, right? You know what a stadia is, that unit? 
Um, what this is telling us is that that city is 1,500 miles wide and high and deep. Uh, that's big. This is not downtown Watkinsville. <laughs> Quaint, with a little shop on the corner. Um, if you actually look at maps of the ancient Roman world, the world that would have received this document, um, do you know about how far the Roman Empire stretched? 1,500 miles. It's the entire known world, is what they're saying. That this, this entire holy city is like the whole world being renewed and transformed. And I think that does two things for us. One is it says, any of the things that we build ourselves, Babylon, Rome, whatever we think is really special, um, it just pales in comparison to the glory of what God is doing. Um, secondly, I just rejoice that it's huge because God is calling a huge multitude to himself uh, from every tribe and tongue and nation. It's just great to know, like, you need a lot of room. You need a lot of real estate for all of these people who will dwell uh, with God forever. Verses 3 through 4 kind of underscore that. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. That's our great hope, to dwell with God forever. And it says, When we dwell with God forever, he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Um, again, I don't know if you've tried to read the book of Revelation before. Um, most folks don't make it to this part because <laughs> it's just weird. It's wild. You're like, what in the world is happening? What is this about? And I would just say we have the opportunity this morning to just say, hey, let's, let's jump over some of what we don't understand and see what's clear. And what's clear in this passage is that our great hope is to dwell with God forever. And everything um, that's opposed to God will be done away with. Sin, death, the evil one, tears, pain, sadness, all these are taken away as we dwell with the Lord forever uh, in glory and in joy. And so as you read, Jesus is telling us what's happening uh, that he's making all things new. Uh, verse 6, so he says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, uh, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life. Don't miss this, without payment. <laughs> you can't buy this. We don't earn it. We don't force it. We don't build it. We receive it by grace. Um. And I even love that little, it is, it is done. Um, I mean, we're used to this, right? Jesus on the cross says something similar. It is finished. Tetelestai, um, it is finished. I've accomplished that for which I have come. Uh, this is different. This is, it is done in the sense of it's over. Um, this is like a mic drop on all of God's creation. It's finished. It's done. No more. Um, and full satisfaction, unearned, undeserved, flows from God uh, to us. Again, I don't know that we can fully uh, grasp this. We can worship in light of it. Uh, we can engage in God's mission in light of it. We can uh, examine our own lives and our communities in light of it. Certainly we can hope. 
and we can persevere when things seem hopeless. Uh, with this in mind, uh, Alan Ross says, the greatest hope for us in glory is complete communion and union with the living Lord. And therefore, John receives a vision of the marriage of the Lamb in glory and all the praise and adoration associated with it. Here is a realization of the plan of creation, the purpose of redemption. Here is fulfilled the desire of the Savior that we might be with him. That's what's clear and unassailable in this passage. Um, and then the next section is just kind of interesting. It's a little weird. Talks about all the lights are missing. See that? There's no moon. There's no sun. Uh, there's no stars. Um, and it's just letting us know that we don't need these things any longer. These things that reflect light and these things that, that illuminate things for us because uh, God himself shines brightly. Um, his glory is everywhere in this city, uh, this city that's a, a temple uh, in and of itself. Jesus shines with the glory of God. Um, and then there are several little interesting things that are uh, missing as we kind of tell this story. Um, one of the things I noticed that's really different is any city uh, at this time or in the ancient world, well, those cities were built around gates and walls and battlements where you could watch for your enemy and make sure they didn't come in. Um, you had whole systems of military service and things where you would rotate through. Here's my turn on the wall. Here's my turn to open the gate. Check that person as they come in. Um, and here they just say, hey, the gates are always open. <laughs> um, I think I, I, that would be like if you never locked your door at night because you knew that there was nothing that could come in and harm you. Um, that's weird, right? Could you imagine going to bed every night and just leaving the door open? Not just unlocked. Like, what if you just left it open like those doors? Anyone can come and go at will. The Lord says the, the nations are going to stream in. There's nothing to fear any longer because God's great victory has been won and it has been executed. And then we hear this, it's just this kind of odd scene of there's a river running through the middle of the city. I don't think that's Venice. I don't know. Um, there's a tree over here on the side, the tree of life, and it's got these 12 things flowering. And it's for the months, which that's, I'm like, I don't know how you have months without the sun. Um, I don't see how, I, you know, if you would ask me, hey, there's 12 of these, like, oh, cool, for the 12 tribes of Israel. Nope, for the 12 months of the year, for eternity. That, okay. Um, again, don't get hung up or lost on those kinds of details. What this tells us is that God will provide everything we need eternally uh, from this tree, from the fruit. And that's done for our benefit and our sustenance and also for peace. He says, for the flowering and the peace of the nations. That's the plan God is working out here at the very end uh, of the story. Um, and again, I know that this may be um, a little different from kind of a Sunday school version where we only talk about, um, you know, heaven or, you know, our spirit's going to go out of our bodies because our body's bad and our spirit's good. Something, okay, that's, you're reading too much Plato, not enough Bible. Um, and again, those who die, we go to be with the Lord. Don't mistake me on that. But there's something great and glorious still to come. That's not the full story. And God's new creation is in some ways, you know, more physical 
uh, more firm, more real. It's, it's glorious. It's incorruptible. It, I mean, think about we're in this garden. Think about a flower that never drops a petal. Think about it, that eternal beauty. Nothing is decaying. Nothing is dying. Nothing is sick. Nothing is aging. It, it, it remains at its peak moment of God said, this is what this is supposed to be. Here's how I've created it. Here's how it reflects my image, and it does that forever. Um, I don't know, this is hard to get, for me at least, it's hard to get my head around. And so sometimes when I'm at a loss, it just helps to read a good story that helps bring some of this up. Um, and we're in an Anglican church, so we're always free to invoke St. C.S. Lewis. Am I right? Is that fair? All right. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his Chronicles of Narnia series, the last book is called The Last Battle. Um, and I find it really helpful because he gives us a version of this story that's not like stadia and things that I don't understand. It's things that I can actually grasp and get a hold of. And it, it leads me to worship. Um, it helps anchor my hope. And so there's this moment towards the end of The Last Battle um, if you don't know the Chronicles of Narnia, you can go get that too and read it with Surprised by Hope. It'd be a great little summer thing. But at the end of it, um, they're going to a new country. They're going to Aslan's country. And Aslan is this kind of Christ figure uh, throughout the Chronicles of Narnia. And he's leading all these things in. And it's not just people. It's all kinds of animals and beasts, which I think is a beautiful picture of new creation. Um, and he writes that this new country uh, was a deeper country, that every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. Um, God's new creation will be like that. And then there's one character, and it's a unicorn, and I think that was just because C.S. Lewis wanted to delight my nine-year-old daughter when she reached through to see there's a talking unicorn. Come on, that's awesome. And this talking unicorn uh, looks out at Aslan's country, this kind of picture of new creation, and says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The unicorn says, the reason why we love the old creation is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Uh, anything you love about your life, your family, God's good creation, it's a glimpse an arrow to God's new creation and intent. Um, yeah, the reason why we love God's creation is that it sometimes looks a little like what is to come. And then the unicorn hears an invitation. Uh, come further up, come further in. Further up, further in. For eternity, come and dwell. You have at last come home, and this is our real country, our true country. And so we're left with the reminder that we have an eternal home prepared for us when our present world, good but, but broken, um, is transformed and restored and renewed, and we are given the joy of dwelling with God and one another forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.